Hey everyone, just a few programming notes this episode. First up, a content warning as part of our main topic, which starts with a discussion of Ridley Scott's The Last Jewel. We talk a little bit about rape and sexual assault uh, very briefly and nothing graphic, but if you have some sensitivity to that subject, then please be aware. Also, just on a technical note, my audio, I think for the first like 15 minutes of the episode, might be a little echoey because there was a problem with the microphone, which does get fixed, so just bear in mind that the first 15 minutes or so um, I might sound a little bit weird. And finally, this episode was recorded back in October and we were originally going to kind of run it then, but uh, yeah, we kind of had to move things around you know, the schedule, which is why there's no news segment because um, it would be weird to release an episode with news like months later and also why uh, Emily makes a brief reference to the COP26 conference which was going on at the time. Uh, so that's everything. Please enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week's through the milk water like technology is Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Uh, did you know that all of the politicians are going to sort it all out? Oh, thank God. I know, right? Uh, not that they probably made most of the issues in the first place. I am, of course, being facetious uh, and and deeply sarcastic. Yes, I am pretty tired uh, keeping track of all of the contradictions within COP26, which is happening in, uh, in my town, in my city, mm-hmm. in Glasgow. The climate march photos look wonderful. I was not in that number because as much as I really love the planet, Ed, I know I'm biased because it's my home planet, but it is also the best, I have to say. I'm a fan of Jupiter myself, but... Oh, so is my niece. I see the argument. Yeah, yeah. I mean, (laughs) there's plenty of planet to go around, but not in a habitable sense. Um, Mm. Yes, I was not in that number because I'm terrible with big crowds, um, particularly in... The latter, let's hope, stages of a pandemic. It's not over. It's just been going on for a while. How are you, please? Yeah, I'm good. I um, got to go and visit my new office this week. Mm-hmm. Um, our, my, the company I work for announced like two and a bit years ago that we we're going to be moving to a new office um, in the downtown Orlando area. And that has been going on even though none of us have been in the old office for like nearly two years so the move finally happened like in the last couple of weeks and we're still not planning to kind of go in full time but I needed to go in to pick up some equipment so I got the opportunity to go and see it and see you know the outside of the building because it's a new building that's been built specially for us and everything it's all very exciting um, but in doing so I uh, experienced one of my least favorite things about um, America's grid-based system for roads, which is that sometimes they just name two roads the same thing uh, with very little difference. So I entered the address that I thought was where our new office was and into my GPS because I'd never been there before. So obviously that was the easiest way to find it. And it gave me one that was the exact same street and the same number, but with uh, a crucial E for East at the start, which I didn't realise was a different place. So I, instead of going to, you know, 
an office block that's meant to house a fairly large company. Uh, I ended up driving around a very pleasant looking residential area until I could uh, pull up and figure out what had gone wrong. <laughs> so that was a fun little adventure. But uh, it, it was genuinely very cool to see our new office, admittedly just from the outside and then the parking garage because we're not allowed in yet while they're setting everything up. But uh, it was also, there was also just something quite nice about um, foreseeing a change in my routine in the near future because obviously I've been working from home since March of last year it's a li it's been very wearying in fact I had a call with someone at work about this like in the week where we were just kind of like talking about how we feel how the ways in which you know working from home in some ways is very good but in other ways kind of feels like it can put a strain on the team and but and, and you know for the most part I've been fine with it but it was quite cool seeing like oh like in you know six seven eight months however long it is until we go we end up going back in full time again um, I will have like a commute and it seemingly won't be that bad and I'll go into you know this office and there'll be like restaurants I can walk to and kind of pick up food and it was just like a nice little glimpse of a future that isn't contained within like uh mostly within the walls of my own flat um so that was kind of like um i don't know like profound in a very banal way <laughs> so we'll go on to the uh we'll go straight into the main topic for this episode because you and i were discussing before and that there wasn't like a huge amount of news that was like really significant and that we felt we needed to kind of go over so this episode is about the notion of perspective in, in filmmaking. This uh, was inspired by the fact that I went to go and see The Last Jewel, Ridley Scott movie, that uh, has come and gone, unfortunately, because um, the, you know it's very hard for movies to make money uh, in the current uh, situation, particularly if they are two-and-a-half-hour-long historical epics with... Uh, no kind of like pre-existing brand uh, attached to them, which is a terrible shame. Um, really, this this episode is just I want to talk about the last jewel because I was so <laughs> taken with it, and I think it's such a good movie and so fascinating. Um, but and the thing that's really fascinating about it, uh, or one of the things about it that's really fascinating, is the way in which it plays with perspective for people who don't know what the last jewel is about, and why would you like hardly anyone saw it is. It is about um, a woman played by Jodie Comer, who is the wife of a French nobleman played by Matt Damon, who accuses another French nobleman played by Adam Driver of raping her. Um, this is a true story which resulted in the two men uh, fighting to the death in, I think, what technically isn't the last ever duel to the death, kind of like sanctioned as a way of proving someone's innocence in French history, but it's like one of the last notable ones. And, you know, one of the last jewels isn't as, as compelling a title, I guess. And the structure of the movie is really, really fascinating. It's told in three chapters where the first chapter is the events of the story as seen from the perspective of Matt Damon's character, who views himself as this loyal soldier to the King of France, who is always um, being shit on by life, essentially. He feels like he loses out on opportunities because his lord, played by Ben Affleck, favours Adam Driver's character, and so Adam Driver gets all the things that Damon thinks that he 
um, deserves. I'll use the actors' names because I cannot. I will butcher the French names so badly <laughs> if I if I try to use this. So uh, apologies to the to the people of France, but I am just trying to spare you from um, from pain. And you know, he kind of comes across as someone who's put upon, but genuinely a decent guy. Then the second part of the movie is told from the perspective of Adam Driver's character, who sees um, Damon as, you know, a a decent guy, but kind of a klutz, someone who always just makes the wrong decisions and who doesn't live up to his potential. And, you know, you see more of his relationship with the Ben Affleck character and you see that, you know, they're quite close friends and Driver, like, did a lot to help him kind of become solvent and collect his rents and things like that. And you see the the rape with, uh, of Jodie Comer's character by Adam Driver and Adam Driver seeing it as being uh, Adam Driver's character seeing it as being like not rape but like a kind of like this playful thing that he's had experiences with other noble women where they are meant to you know um, say no and say no no I don't want this because that's what ladies are meant to do um, and then the third part of the story is from Jodie Comer's perspective in not only do you see that, oh no, totally, it was actually rape, and Adam Driver's character like completely misconstrues the situation uh, to devastating effect. But also, you see Adam, uh, you see Matt Damon's character from a different perspective. You see him as this kind of like cold husband who's like unfeeling. And other scenes in the movie where he has portrayed himself as being, he, he viewed himself clearly as the the good guy in the situation, he is much more ambiguous in the Jodie Comer parts of the story. And I thought it just handled that so very well in terms of showing all of these different perspectives, showing the commonalities between them. Like you see several scenes, three times, each slightly different, depending on whose perspective is being represented by the camera. Uh, Ridley Scott also used lighting really well, like the the rape in Adam Driver's version kind of has a bit more of an autumnal glow to it, and in the Jodie Comer version, it's kind of like icy and steel, and there's no and like you know the the music is notably different. And I just thought it's it's one of the best kind of big budget Hollywood films I've seen in ages. Yeah, full stop. But also that really understands the ways in which the camera can be used to present an image of truth and then to subvert it. And so, yeah, so I wanted to kind of like talk about other movies that also kind of like use the, the, the techniques of filmmaking to offer like alter it or uh, offer like different perspectives. Mm. I'm interested to see the last duel. And I think it's interesting that um, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon have chosen like this story to tell and that from what you've told me i haven't seen it but you know seen it yet i'd really like to um but that's a very powerful use of perspective not to mm-hmm. say that adam driver's character you know not validating his view but saying how how genuinely particularly at that time um that kind that kind of character just wouldn't understand the harm that he was causing mm-hmm. um, and that it is all about him and his ego tells true yeah yeah i mean it's when you suggested uh the topic for um this episode i thought yes brilliant but then i ended up finding more episodes of tv 
than film necessarily. Um, and funny enough, all of mine are sitcoms because I think mm. perspective change is kind of a an maybe not kind of overlooked but definitely unsung aspect of um, comedy. And I think is it brasses off. Not that I've ever got to see it live. I'd like to one day, but that being oh noises off noises off. Thank you, noises yeah. off because then brassed off is with um, Pete Postlethwaite and Ewan McGregor. Thank you. My my head just kept saying Pete Townsend, and I was like, that's not that's no <laughs> other Pete, lovely grumpy Pete. Sadly, sadly missed Pete. Mm. God, remember the age of stupid. I remember watching that and being like, yeah, we should really do something about this. Sorry, planet's on my mind a bit now. Um, mm. Yes. Um, so, noises off being, you know, you see a story from one angle and then you see it from a different perspective, and it's hilarious because so much of that is based on the very human need to um, save face and the entertainment of the show must go on, and there is no loose seams or anything like that. Um, but I think the most recent example that I thought used it to absolute i can't think of a, a less plummy word but a plum is uh, in ghosts um in the second series um there is an episode called the thomas thorne affair where uh thomas regales the tale of how he came to his end but the thing is other ghosts remember it differently and <clears throat> one of the things i love about ghosts is that it's such a strong ensemble cast and the characters are an array of really kind of the, the the one like the wonderful silliness and the kind of actually very family friendliness there's a bawdiness to ghosts that gets touched upon every so often but really it's exactly the kind of thing that i would want kids and teenagers to watch because i think it's got it, it's in no way patronizing but then neither is it sort of so dark or difficult um, that it wouldn't be suitable for younger viewers but there's like a deep well of sadness to each character as well as in life and they're just each of them are so brilliant and each of them I think are strong enough to potentially carry their own not just their own story but each of them have a lot a lot going for them so of course Thomas and the ghosts before him obviously the ghosts who joined after him weren't there to witness his demise but the ghosts before him um, remember it differently. And the strength is, is that they remember it from their own perspective. So Robin, played by Lawrence Rickard, who is the Neanderthal and is my favourite. Like, I love them all, mm -hmm. but he is my favourite. He actually hears everyone speak in the same way that he does. Um, right. So the language completely changes. And this is like the third or fourth run i think it's the third maybe the last run through um because we return to the story several times and more mystery is revealed and unearthed um as we go along with it so i think it's a really deftly woven plot of a script not just these three different perspectives of the same day and the same events but also humor sadness and mystery like genre wise so I think it does an awful lot in a really short space of time. And it's just hilarious. Like, I think Robin is my favourite. Like, the way that he just has a chat to a horse. And, oh, it's just lovely. But it's a lovely showcase of each character and how unique to them their perspective is. 
um, mm. which yeah, I don't think is often. It's it's harder, I think, to do that in like for comic effect in a film. I mean, I mentioned noises off because obviously that's live and mm. as, a, as a play, and uh, I think Alan Ackbourne's it played around. You know, it's something that happens in farce quite a bit, but a sitcom is also a really great way to reset because you don't necessarily need to you know you're essentially telling one story that's 10 minutes or at least a mm. sorry a plot that is 10 minutes three times over and then the story that evolves and the meaning that builds up on that repetition yeah it's just super super interesting and similar um is um the episode in uh, i think it's the third series of coupling um, with Patrick and Sally remembering how they first met and of course uh, in the first in the first run through from Sally's perspective she's very erudite and having a great time and Patrick um, just says the word car when he um, <laughs> describes how he how he arrived um, and then from Patrick's point of view uh, Sally was a bit worse for wear shall we say yeah, so obviously used to great comic effect, but then at the end is actually really quite tender and touching. And I'm not one to um, compliment Stephen Moffat. I try not to make a habit of it. But, you know, when he wrote Coupling, it, it, it was all right. I don't think it's aged very well. I have to go into it with kind of a hazmat <laughs> around my heart <laughs> because younger me really loved it. But it probably explains a lot as to how much I had to do in the unlearning of gender roles. But yeah, those are the two, you know, because there is just that very um, kind of seed of comedy that is essentially expectation versus reality. Mm. And that that doesn't get old. No. You talking about uh, uh, Robin uh, there reminded me of one of my favourite one-off jokes from King of the Hill, which is where in one episode we see the world from the perspective of Boomhauer, <laughs> the character who uh, everyone knows from a limerick, you know, like no one can understand him. And then we see the world from his perspective. He talks incredibly clearly. And every, everyone else has Boomhauer voices. And it's a very good joke. It's oh very my, good. Oh my God, Ed. And that just reminded me of in 30 Rock where you see through um, Kenneth's eyes and everyone's a Muppet. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite yeah it's like you're totally right that i think perspective and particularly doing things like that where you show the world through a different character's point of view or you you know you tell a story from two characters perspectives is so rife for comedy because you can play so well with how they view each other and you can like tailor it to the specifics of like how those characters relate to each other i think a show that I that I can't remember of any specific examples because it's been so long since I watched any of it. But I sh- a show that I think played with perspective a lot all the time, where it was all really funny, was How I Met Your Mother. Yes. Uh, at at least for the five seasons of it that I watched it, I understand it. It it fell off <laughs> in the last few years, um, but so much of that show because it's told from the perspective of the father in the future relating this story to the kids and it's so much of it is like little things like him sanitizing his uh frequent uh drug use as a as, as, as a, like, a, like a, a teen and young adult by having them eat just eating big sandwiches <laughs> when 
they're, they're clearly meant to be uh, smoking a bong or whatever, like stuff like that. I always thought that that show did really well, and you know, whenever they would do stories in the past like that, would be a conceit they would use. Is usually it would be two or three characters telling a story, and then you seeing the story play out in you know all these elaborate flashbacks, which were such a big part of the structure of that show. And it's just, it's like a comedic engine that you can just constantly go back to and like really and truthfully never wears down because if the writers are smart enough to know, okay, this is how this character views those characters. Like, like the Kenneth example is obviously the, 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 the best and most obvious one where everyone is a Muppet. It's just, yes, obviously that's, that's how he would view the world or to, to go to, you know, frequent favorite of the show, the Simpsons, the one joke where, homer is recounting an event at a town meeting where marge spoke in favor of something and then in his retelling she was against it and then you see his memory and he is incredibly muscled her hair's a different color (laughs) um like you just there there's just so much comedy to be mined from you know taking people who are yeah i mean we're all self-centered we all kind of view the world through our own (laughs) our own lens but um you know, applying that to characters who in sitcoms or farces are obviously living very heightened lives. So you can really push the boat out in how ridiculous they will view the other characters. Absolutely. In terms of, you know, kind of like dramas that use this approach, obviously, and the, the maybe the most famous, like, because in the fact that, you know, it's got an effect named after it, <laughs> is is uh, Rashomon, which uh, I rewatched in preparation for this and it's as good as i remembered um uh which is the kira kurosawa's movie where uh three uh, three or four characters are recounting a incident in the woods where a uh a bandit you know maybe killed a kind of like a, a samurai maybe didn't and you kind of see all the different perspectives that's one where you know the basics of the structure where you see each person's perspective playing out and how each character acts in each retelling like differs really it's just such a perfect blueprint for the idea it's one of those cases where you know you you hear something that's so influential you assume oh like the first go around of this must have been in some way like a little more primitive or whatever but like Rashomon is like there from the beginning Kurosawa knew exactly what he wanted to do and the thing that really impressed me this time was the difference between the bandits telling of the story which a bandit played by Toshiro Mifune uh, where his fight with the samurai is shown to be like incredibly cinematic is the only word for it like it's this really cool fight where he like wins out and then when another character who witnessed the fight from a distance retells a story, it's this completely inept scramble where the two are like wildly throwing themselves around and f- trying to do anything but fight each other. And Mifune's character wins just like by pure accident. And like, it's, it's amazing how much like Kurosawa just immediately knew the potential for that storytelling device where obviously there's, plenty of drama to it but you can uh, get a bit of comedy from seeing you know the vast difference between how the bandit views himself in his telling and how this other character views it in his retelling and then like another genre as well that kind of came up a lot in my thinking about this uh, was crime stories yeah because obviously so many 
stories about uh, murder in particular tend to be different people recounting an event from their own perspective and then the detective trying to figure out who's telling the truth. Um, funnily enough, one of the I'm currently reading Agatha Christie's book, uh, Five Little Pigs, which is based entirely upon this premise. I actually just happened to pick it up. I hadn't planned it to be like relevant to this episode, but it totally is because the middle part of that book is just five first-hand accounts of these people who are all present at a kind of big manor house where a murder occurred and Farrow has asked them all to write down their remembrances of it and so as you read them you get to see the discrepancies between them and it's, it's an interesting approach to the idea of, of crime fiction and perspectives um, and then also like another example I had for that was the uh, the TV show Cold Case which I used to watch periodically because you know I just would enjoy watching um, procedurals and that because that um, show dealt with long unsolved murders and these detectives kind of like digging into the fact retroactively, so much of that show consisted of people recounting the events as they saw them. And I always thought that it was really, yeah, it was just like a really effective use of the Rashomon effect and the technique and, you know, using perspective where you are seeing all of these characters through their own eyes but then someone else comes in and tells a different story and suddenly you are forced to reconsider them and it's like in just in any story where you're trying to get to the truth the kind of like ways in which you can shift ideas around perspective can be like it's so kind of adds that extra layer to it i think totally kind of picking up and running with the crime and moving into a sweet bit of sci-fi because mm -hmm. any opportunity I get to sing about how much I love Strange Days by Catherine Bigelow. In oh, Day, yeah. You know I'm going to take it. And I'm really excited, Ed, because it's coming around to New Year's Eve. And that's when I watch Strange Days without fail. It, ah, God, I love this film so much. I keep thinking about the action sequences and how there is not a scratch of CGI in that. It's just physical effects and camera effects. Mm -hmm. and they hold up so beautifully unlike the mini discs that are in place <laughs> for uh, the, the hardware that records people's experiences um but the pov the extensive pov sequences in this film blow my mind every time mm -hmm. and i know this is quite a literal uh use of perspective but there is something about um films that are done really well as if through someone else's eyes that just affect mm. you on a different level and i think strange days blends this um it's basically cyberpunk isn't it but yeah it's not as aggressively in the future as a lot of cyberpunk like it actually feels to me so much more like how we're living now um except with maybe ones wearing jazzier outfits that could change um but it's not kind of it, it's the kind of late 80s early 90s idea of what the millennium is gonna be and like la mm. is still recognizable like um the history of corruption within la is very recognizable it comments on a lot but i think those stretches are and the way that ray finds plays a character who you know, it's such an incredible allegory for empathy 
and basically living someone else's some of other people's worst experiences I love that film so much and I guess also like it's hard not to sort of mention that kind of through the eyes of another without enter the void yeah which again I think is done incredibly well I don't think it's I don't think POV is something that immediately makes something better and virtual VR porn could (laughs) serve to sort of take a a long hard look at themselves maybe not that long and hard but I think the thing about Enter the Void is I remember going to see it in the cinema so clearly and freaking out by the fact that you could see the character blinking (laughs) Mm. and I was like I might have some sort of weird migraine or attack. I don't like this. And the experience of being in a character's head as they die in their last few moments of consciousness was really affecting. And I was like, oh, great. This is the inciting incident. Off we go. And then it becomes this sort of obviously very fluid um, consciousness that I'd argue uh, Richard Linklater's um, slacker has that same kind of... um, protagonist that is a perspective rather than Mm. a singular character and maybe one could argue possibly magnolia as well and i think there's something really compelling about that because particularly with slacker because it's not rooted in the character i think enter the void gets away with it because we we are in that character's head as they die and we have the clear understanding that this is some kind of spirit consciousness of that belongs that belonged to this person that we are then um, carried through. Um, mm. But I think if you have a strong enough, and I think also curious enough perspective, like there is this kind of slightly voyeuristic elements at points, but at the same time, I think what Linklater and um, No Way do very well is kind of present a consciousness as the main entry point into their work and i find that really really exciting um i haven't haven't seen that for a while um because i think we are you know again i i recently watched um images by robert altman which i found ultimately quite frustrating i really loved fragments of it but it is a immensely fragmented film and I think it's just it makes its point quite early on and is a bit repetitive as brilliant as Susanna York is in it but that kind of and that's quite loose and the idea of like oh are these various different elements of someone's um you know of their identity and their mental experience but to have something just quite and so I found that quite frustrating because I realised, oh, I do actually miss the kind of quite structured narrative arc of we start with a character and we don't from one place and we go to another. But hey, it was the 70s, Ed. It was a different time. Um, but yeah, I haven't seen a, a whole lot of that kind of playing with perspective recently, which is why I'm quite so excited to watch The Last Duel. Yeah, I have Enter the Void on my, on my list as well. I think it's it's interesting there that you kind of feel as if no way like a few films too late found a justification for his kind of like roaming floaty camera work that he used in like irreversible for no real reason (laughs) like it's just an it's an aesthetic approach that he chose it doesn't really have any bearing on the film other than you know 
the fact that you know having the camera suddenly zoom off and fly around in all different directions allows it makes it a little easier to edit it together to make it seem like it's all one take but yeah like there he's kind of coming up with a justification like you say oh you know it's the the the, the consciousness of a dying man so you you would see the story through his perspective and then when he dies his his consciousness kind of like floats out and he starts going around and visiting all the people in his life also feels like it's his justification for perving on Pazla Huerta a little bit yeah um, which definitely definitely one of the things of that movie where you think mm, yeah this this doesn't quite feel justified by the uh talk of the Tibetan book of the dead and <laughs> like uh notions of consciousness being bigger than just these kind of like pounds of flesh that we all live in but um, that that is definitely a movie that I have a very indelible memory of seeing. I think I went to the press screening of it at the showroom when it was coming out, and I just remember just every like you know press screenings being very early in the morning or whatever. The um, opening two minutes of that just being such a kind of like blast of energy just like immediately waking up feeling like you've had coffee uh, injected directly into your eyeballs and and to the extent that sometimes if i'm feeling like a little bit lethargic i will just watch the intro to enter the void on youtube and just be like ah yes that's blown the cobwebs away Mm -hmm. Uh, because because it is just like it's so i mean it's assaultive but in a way that just kind of feels energizing as opposed to um making you feel sick although Obviously, that's because I'm lucky enough not to have any sort of photosensitive issues. I imagine for uh, a lot of people, that would be very bad. So that's a, that's fair warning for people. Don't watch the intro to Enter the Void if you have um, epilepsy or in any way photosensitive. Um, but yeah, I think the idea of first-person perspective, I think, can be very cool. I do think it, it, it can also fall so easily into gimmickry. Yeah. Um, so, like, on the one hand, in terms of um, the use of it to create a sense of empathy, which I think is is totally right in terms of um, Strange Days and, you know, how that movie, I think, very cannily explores the boundary between um, watching something as boy- pure voyeurism and watching something as a way of coming to know someone better. The bit in Doom, the... Uh, 2004 adaptation of the successful video game franchise where it all goes first person just because it's an adaptation of doom and people expect it is like just pure just like cheese and trash and like it's fun and it it lives up to the thing it's aiming to be which is a prolonged first person shooter sequence in an adaptation of a first person shooter but it's just one of those things where you think, yeah, there's there's no real reason for this to exist other than the fact that you know that fans of Doom will find it to be pretty cool. Mm. And it is pretty cool. It is definitely the most notable part of that movie, except for the... I think it was fanfic about it or someone trying to write a description of it um, online, which I remember people sharing quite a bit and which memorably includes the phrase, No, John, you are the demons. <laughs> which I always think of as just kind of like a great bit of old internet ephemera. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think there's there's definitely kind of instances where you can look at it and just think this just feels like a neat trick that someone's doing to show off. Um, another example would be something like The Villainous, which is a Korean action movie that came out three or four years ago, I think, which is all first person. And 
is immensely exciting. Like there is something very exciting about being in first person when someone is having a a uh, sword fight on top of a moving mic uh, motorcycle. Um, but also, you do kind of think, I'm not seeing a lot of what seems very cool choreography because I'm in the middle of it, mm. <laughs> uh, which is kind of a shame. Although you do all it, again, it does feel very distinctive and, and a somewhat unique experience to be placed in directly in the middle of something like that where usually you would be seeing it, it third person but i was never totally convinced that it really justified um the approach uh, another movie that i have on my list is, as an example of a movie that uses first person really well in a very different way because it's an incredibly still movie is um diving bell and the butterfly oh, wow. where you, you are in the perspective of uh, Matthew Elmarek's character for pretty much the entirety of the movie. I don't remember if there's any bits where you aren't in his perspective, but certainly the vast majority of it is just his thoughts, his view on the world, which is pretty much static because obviously he's playing a character who suffered a, a real like person who suffered a stroke and then learned to communicate by blinking his uh, eyes and then used you know, a system of blinks to write this memoir uh, about his experience and so you're hearing his thoughts and his experiences he works through trying to communicate with the world again and there the use of so much first person in it is like so effective at literally putting you in in that person's shoes and forcing you to live in this incredibly claustrophobic existence that he finds himself in where he is confined to one seat essentially or one bed where he just can like has no way of shifting his perspective on the world and for much of the movie has no way of communicating with it and then uh, oh yeah and then in in terms of um the more exploitative end of things you also have something like hardcore henry which was uh, a first person movie that came out i think about five or six years ago at this point which was again similar to the villainess was a first person action movie essentially where you're following this guy as he just goes on a complete rampage and again it's like it's one of those things where you look and think this is very effective at you know being a visceral experience of putting you essentially you know imagining if you put the put a gopro on the head of someone in an action movie and just filmed it but also kind of leaves you feeling a little sick and uh ultimately doesn't feel like it adds a huge a huge amount to the movie that you wouldn't have got if you were just watching a plain old-fashioned movie where you weren't feeling nauseous the whole time. Oh, yeah, that is, that's taken me right back to uh, the very beginning of Enter the Void and the um, flicky-flicky. Um, speaking of perspective, mm. again, a film that I think is um, unsung, and this might be a bit of a stretch, but The Future, Miranda July's second film. Mm, sure. Uh, has the perspective of a couple's cat but has mm -hmm. always really stuck with me um i think the cat only bookends the film um but there's just it's in its little basket and uh in its box rather sorry you never see the cat's face you just see this little paw and uh it has this raspy little voice that's always stuck with me and i think you know not to get too into sort of um theories about sort of consciousness and things but you know what I, I, I enjoyed that oh is it a dog's life 
Is that the one where it's from the mm, North Atlantic? Mm-hmm. Oh, God, yeah. no, I can never watch that film. That would just absolutely break me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Oh, also, um, thinking about, like, um, more the sort of camera's perspective and being more of a... Um, there being more awareness of the camera than just kind of... Well, the technique, shall we say. I was thinking, again, sort of coming off the back of Spooky Season how much I want to rewatch, and yet also I'm just still terrified of This House Has People In It. Um, mm. The uh, Alan Resnick mega, I think it was part of the infomercial slot on um, Adult Swim Cartoon Network. But it, it seems like a really creepy short film, but I think it actually expanded out into a huge alternate reality game. Oh, wow. Which I might have to scratch the surface of. But the thing about this house has people in it is that, again, horror is so incredible to sort of elucidate as a genre through using perspective because there is something incredibly sinister about the fact that this is all being seen through surveillance cameras that Mm. also seem to be being uh, controlled by someone um, or something, and yet we never find out why or who. And I think that's going to creep more and more into sort of uh, artists and genres because I think, you know, I haven't seen a huge amount of camera as character, but given that we all pretty, well, a huge amount of us in um, the Western world at least have a camera in our pockets, and yet that hasn't really been explored beyond, hey, it's great, you can make a film on your iPhone, don't ask for money, kids. Just do it yourself, and then we'll buy it and uh, make a shit ton off the distribution. I'm so, I'm so salty today, Ed. I apologise, but you know the idea of like, you know, the ghost in the machine. There's so many more machines now. So mm. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not great at maths, but that would suggest to me there's more ghosts too. Mm. Well, yeah, it sounds the reason. Um. Yeah, I think that kind of brings me on to one of the other kind of areas I thought was interesting in terms of thinking about perspective is um, found footage as a genre, which feels like it may have not exactly died out, but there certainly seems to be less of a demand for it than there was sort of like five or six years ago, maybe, or maybe longer than that. But, you know, the the wake of paranormal activity like really revived the genre in a major way. And obviously, you know, there's antecedents, obviously, Blair Witch and the last broadcast and uh, Cannibal Holocaust to an extent. There's obviously, like, lots of examples of people using the idea of, oh, you know, this is footage of a real thing that happened and then presenting it and obviously it being, like, a fictional framework or whatever. Um, But I think that is really impressive as an example of using people's familiarity with the notion of home video to lend an air of authenticity to stories that otherwise might seem like ridiculous or that you know that they may not be as scary presented normally like i remember really enjoying the first paranormal activity when i watched it i never checked out any of the others but the first one i thought was really effective it's like a pretty much straightforward um haunted house movie but because so much of it is seen through the the rawer visual style of, you know, like commercially available digital photography, there is like an intimacy to it and an immediacy to it that feels really, really um, 
unsettling, I think, and, and placing the camera, acknowledging the existence of the camera and kind of like placing us as the audience it, as close to the world of the characters as possible without actually going into first person. Uh, I, I tend to find to be really effective on a base level. And then like the films around the technique can obviously vary in quality. But um, I've always found found footage to be just like a really interesting way of approaching, you know, those kinds of stories. Mm. And yeah, I think it's a shame that we don't see more genres really taking it on because really it has been confined for the most part to horror. And that makes sense because, you know, horror benefits from low budgets so like you can make a movie super cheap if you're doing it found footage and you don't necessarily have to spend a huge amount on effects and there's like a whole thriving like subgenre with the vhs movies and things like that of of people kind of experimenting in the space but um, i kind of feel like i i kind of wish we had got more movies like cloverfield that try and take found footage and do it on a much bigger scale And then, yeah, the only other thing I kind of had on on this topic was the use of camera placement to uh, as a as a form of perspective and as a way of shaping the way in which a story is told. The two examples I had of that were uh, E.T., where the camera is placed at um, Elliot's eye level for the entirety of it, so it feels like you know you are being placed on the same level as Elliot and E.T. and the whole story is essentially being told from the perspective of a child for the most part. Um, and uh, Rear Window, where with a scant few exceptions, every shot in that movie is either within the apartment looking at, you know, the things that Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly are doing, or it is them looking out onto the other apartments and kind of observing other people's lives and how placing the camera there and like mimicking their view of the world or specifically jimmy stewart's view of the world really does like add to the tension and the claustrophobia of that movie particularly sort of towards the end as uh things start to uh spiral out of control mm. so uh we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot Verse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week the project which mm. is a BBC two-parter um, from, I want to say, 2002, starring Matthew McFadden and Naomi Harris. And I wasn't aware of it at all um, until being so excited about Succession, I was diving into Matthew McFadden's work because I'm a big fan of his work and realised, oh, the project, this sounds very interesting. And it's... So it features their two characters as friends who met whilst they were activists in their at their time in Manchester University. When they graduate, they both find themselves um, working what they think are their dream jobs in the Labour Party, but at the time of New Labour and change. So even though the two of them are playing fictional characters, they're clearly kind of based on various different um, aspects of people at the time. And mm. it's uh, Peter Kuzminski fictional drama within a factual framework he described it and i love a bit of heavily researched docudrama even though there's not so much doc it's more drama which i think makes it um bearable (laughs) basically 
I really, really enjoyed it. It's in YouTube in its entirety. Um, and I'm kind of amazed that it managed to get made. And it makes me very sad because I doubt that the BBC would be able to make anything like this just now. So that's the project. Mm. Yes, you, you describing it just made me realise that I did see that when it aired. Oh. And, uh, it was it is very good. I do distinctly remember the one the one kind of line from it that I remember really keenly is I think Matthew McFadden and Naomi Harris are having sex and he says or he's having he he's having sex with someone at least and he says, This is the first time I'm having sex under a Labour government yeah. and then whoever he's having sex with says, I would hope so Which <laughs> I always remember being a very funny joke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was one a bit that stuck in my mind as well. Um cool. I am going to recommend a video game I've been playing called Inscription, spelt with a, a Y in the middle, which is a game that I feel I can't say a huge amount about because it's a game that really benefits from you kind of uns uncovering the strange things it has on offer. Um, it is ostensibly a card game where you have a kind of a deck that you're playing against an opponent and you're trying to, like, you know, beat them by placing down the right cards and inflicting damage on them. But then it's also kind of an escape room and also it has an extremely opaque but creepy plot that kind of plays out as you uncover more and more of the cabin and as you that you're playing in, you know, you're in this like weird cabin with this guy who keeps playing against you and then when you lose you seem to die and then come back to life to play him again. It's very strange and meta and even when you kind of beat the seeming the main boss the game continues and goes in different directions it's it's really cool um i've had a blast kind of like discovering it and i think if you even if you don't play kind of like card deck builder games which generally i don't like I, i've never really kind of gone with them i think the aesthetic and the story and the mystery of it is so compelling that it's worth kind of getting to grips with that stuff to see where the story goes. It's currently on Steam. I think it's about $17 or something. And it's been like one of my favorite discoveries of the year in terms of like a little indie game that comes from nowhere and suddenly everyone is talking about. Uh, I think it's it's really fascinating and, and worth worth digging into. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Excellent.